Hi, I'm Rachel Thompson, and this is Lit Mag Love. In each episode of Lit Mag Love, I have real conversations with literary magazine editors about their writing lives and the editorial choices they make for their journals. My aim is to help you, lovely writer, discover new journals and understand what goes into the decision to accept or decline your submissions to Lit Mags. Lit Mag Love is produced by Room Magazine and by my course of the same name, Lit Mag Love. In this episode, I speak with Lily Danziger of Narratively Magazine about the responsibility of editors to elevate voices left out of the conversation. We also talk about why you should know what conversations have already been had about the subjects of your writing. And we discuss her experiences with memoir writing, both deep and shallow, with ideas on how to find the deep stories that resonate with readers and editors. Her essays and journalism on sex, politics, and culture have appeared in Rolling Stone, The Rumpus, The Washington Post, Psychology Today, and more. She is the editor of Burn It Down, an anthology of women and non-binary writers on anger, and it's forthcoming from Seal Press. Lily is also at work on a memoir about her father's art and heroin addiction and the legacy of both in her life. Welcome to Lit Mag Love, Lily. Hi, thanks for having me. So I know you're quite prolific, um, having caught up on a lot of your of your work recently too. And I know you write both creative nonfiction essays and reportage. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. then what's your writing practice like? How do you balance working in these different forms from day to day? Um, well, in my own work, I kind of go in phases, I've noticed. You know, I'll get really into reporting and feature writing for a little while and I'll do that a lot. And then I'll realize that I haven't written a personal essay in a while and I, and I miss that. So I'll kind of dive headlong into that and write a bunch of essays. And then I'll realize I haven't reported anything in a while. And, you know, it kind of goes back and forth like that. I think the bigger challenge for me is, is really balancing my own work with my editing work, nurturing other people's work and editing and helping bring that out into the world. And then also finding time to write my own stuff once in a while. Oh, yeah, that's totally relatable to me. (laughs) So can you tell me more about how you became a writer, like your origin story? So did you did you know other writers growing up? Uh, Well, I was raised by two artists. My father was a sculptor, painter, printmaker, and my mother was a fashion designer. So I grew up around creative people and the creative process and art making of various kinds, Uh, not specifically other writers, but uh, that just kind of came to me starting very young. I, I wrote a lot of poetry actually as a very young child, <laughs> which I now don't do at all. But that was my my entry it was you know bad weird kid poems, and that turned into you know I was a big diarist as a teenager, and I really loved Anais Nin. <laughs> so journaling kind of transformed into personal essay and memoir. Uh, and then I, I studied journalism in school, so the two kind of came together there. Nice. So, yeah, I love that kid poetry was sort of your gateway into writing. Mm-hmm. None of it was any good, you know, but still a starting point. <laughs> <laughs> so I know you mentioned your father, and and 
I've read that you said on working on a memoir about your father's visual art and his struggle with an ultimate loss to addiction, you've said it was only in reflecting so deeply on the good and bad of his life that I was able to see him and myself clearly. And so I'm wondering, did you, when you were starting writing, maybe not in the bad poetry days, but later on, were you <laughs> setting out in order to see yourself or or what other motivations do you have for writing? Well, with this project specifically, I, you know, I've been working on this memoir for almost 10 years now, um, but it was not a memoir at all when I started it. I, I started out writing an artist monograph. I wanted to put my father's artwork into a book and tell his story and write about his imagery and his process and just kind of immortalize that. And as I worked on it, everybody who read a draft consistently asked for more of my story, more about what it was like to uncover all this stuff, more about, you know, the process of spending a decade researching him and, and investigating his work. And bit by bit, I kind of crept into the story until it turned into a memoir, um, kind of regardless of my <laughs> intention. So I, I definitely didn't set out to discover myself at all, but that just kind of happened through the storytelling and, and through the finding of the story, which, you know, I think is something that happens to a lot of writers. I think you set out trying to understand the world and it, it kind of circles back and teaches you about yourself and kind of go through that over and over again. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah, I think that's really apt and relatable to a lot of writers. I mean, speaking of personal narratives and that kind of self-discovery that happens a lot in writing, in in your essay, Personal Narratives in the Trump Era, which I'm going to link mm -hmm. in the show notes, you identify one of the greatest challenges of the times right now is the effort to fight off emotional fatigue and talk about the need for this kind of personal narrative tied to the travesties that are happening in our own era as well. And and I, I like how you use the diary of Anne Frank as an example. And there isn't a specific question in this, but it's more um, more just a, th you know, thank you for writing that and such insight and care. And I really urge any writers who draw from their own lives to read it. And I'm just wondering then, in, rather I'll ask, what are the techniques that you use to ward off emotional fatigue and what fills your cup as a writer and editor? I guess specifically about that project, which I imagine was you know, even over 10 years, probably quite difficult at times and, and, yeah. and in other writing projects too. Um, I mean, really, even the emotionally challenging and exhausting and draining material that I sometimes write about, writing really does kind of help me fight off that fatigue because it, it's, it's a direction. It's somewhere to put all of those emotions and that exhaustion. And it's creating something out of it and not just kind of sinking into it and feeling despondent. You know, I think being alive right now, it's very tempting to just give in to apathy and to d disengage and decide nothing matters and we're all screwed. So, whatever. <laughs> and I think for me, writing is a is a good way to to avoid that and gives me something to hold on to and work toward and remember that there are other people out there who are feeling what I'm feeling and that words are a way we can connect to each other and keep each other going and give each other the fuel that we need. So by attempting to provide that for other people, it gives me a feeling of 
you know, something that needs to be done, something that I can do other than just throw my hands up in despair. So that's kind of been the biggest thing for me. You have so much to teach really even about writing just from reading that article and other pieces that you've written and what you're saying now. And I, and I know you also do teach, you do formally teach writing. And I'm wondering yeah. about your experience with writing mentors and if you have an experience with yourself as, as you were mentored yourself or with mentoring other writers and how do you see mentoring happening within your writing community? Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I don't have the traditional idea that you think of as one mentor who you stick with for a lifetime and they're your one person that you always go back to. I, I experience it in more of a communal sense where I feel like there are lots of people that I look to for guidance, reassurance, inspiration. And, you know, I try to pass that forward to many people as well. I've actually been, you know, I mean, of course, there's there's infighting and there's drama and there are issues within the literary community. But I found the writers that I know to be really mostly generous and wonderful people who want to help each other and and, you know, people who are farther along in their careers than I am are always gracious and encouraging and, and happy to tell me that, you know, whatever frustration I'm currently in the middle of, even if it doesn't go away, you get through it. And so I try to provide that reassurance where I can to people who are just starting out. And I, I think that's a really important part of it. You know, why would we each have to reinvent the wheel when we can help each other out? So I see mentoring, you know, in, in my experience, at least to be less of the kind of traditional one-to-one and more of a practice and attitude and general way of relating with the literary community. What's been the most rewarding part for you of editing and how has editing informed your own writing? Um, I mean, that's very related, you know, to the, the idea of, of mentorship. You know, it's incredibly rewarding to be able to help somebody who has an incredible story to tell and to help them tell it, you know, and to to help them shape the writing and guide the specific piece in a craft sense to be the best version of itself. And then also to, you know, be in a position to be able to say, yes, I want to put this out in the world, you know, (laughs) come give it to me, I'll share it with people. You know, there's a lot of talk about editors as gatekeepers. And I think that's a big responsibility that anybody who's in that position should be very aware of. You know, that editors do have a lot of power in deciding whose voices get to be heard, whose stories get to be told. But if you use that, and if you are conscious and aware of that, and you use that to help elevate voices that have been left out of conversations, it can be a really wonderful and rewarding thing um, as opposed to just perpetuating status quo and and letting the same people speak over and over again. And just to answer the second part of your question as for how it's affected my own writing, editing has definitely made me a better writer because, you know, in editing, I find myself giving the same feedback a lot. You know, there are just certain things that I guess it's hard to see in your own work and that an editor needs to come in for a lot of things like often saying this should be a scene, you know, you're telling me a lot of story, but I'm not really seeing it. Bring me into the story and show me Um, things about like how much context and background you need, uh, like reminders that, 
you know, somebody reading this story doesn't know the rest of your story. They don't know your whole life. They haven't, you know, been there with you. So you need to explain certain context of why something meant so much to you or affected you so deeply or whatever. And so making those same comments on so many other people's writing over and over again eventually trained me to <laughs> notice when I'm doing those same things, when I'm telling a lot of story but not showing it, or when I'm presuming foreknowledge in a reader that might not be there. Of course, I still need an editor. Everybody needs an editor. Mm -hmm. you know, and that doesn't mean that I can always see that in my own writing, but it's definitely given me a little more perspective on you know, the usual pitfalls and, and when I'm stepping into them than I had before I was editing. Yeah, I see that so much in my own writing too, where you just start noticing things that you yourself do. I want to get back to the big responsibility as gatekeepers that you were talking about, mm -hmm. which I think is a really important thing to identify and be aware of and then take action around. And I'm just wondering mm -hmm. what's happening at narratively, if we can sh sort of shift to the journal mm -hmm. itself and, and what's happening there to elevate writers left out of the conversation. I always try and think when I get a story about you know, we're always looking like everybody is for the fresh angle, the new story, something surprising, something we haven't seen before. And so I think about that in terms of the story, the actual narrative, what's happening. But I also think about it a lot in terms of the voices that are being represented on the page. And I always look at, you know, the pieces that I have scheduled coming up, the recent pieces I've done. And memoir and personal essay is a, a field that is chock full of white women. You know, and there are a lot of amazing white women writers and a lot of white women who have interesting things to say, but they're not the only ones that have interesting or important things to say. And I try to make sure they're not overrepresented in my section, trying to bring in people of color. I have a couple of really exciting pieces coming up by trans writers, try to include disabled writers, you know, everybody who traditionally has not been able to tell their own stories you know and, and another important thing that I I think about a lot and and want to do better at something that I you know a task I've kind of given myself is to include all of those marginalized voices but not exclusively to talk about the way that they're marginalized yes. we published some really amazing pieces disabled writers talking about their disability or people writing about their gender identity in an enlightening and nuanced way that a lot of readers might not have understood. And, and those pieces are really important and I'm, I'm happy to do them. But I also want to have queer, trans, disabled, fat writers of color writing about whatever random things are interesting to them and experiences in their lives that are you know, that show the, the multitudes, that they're not reduced to their marginalized identity. That's something I think the industry in general could do a better job of. Uh, you know, a lot of times we talk about diversity. So that means, okay, come in, you know, find a writer, come in and be our Black writer, talk about Black issues. You know, but that's, I'm sure, emotionally draining and, and also limiting. You know, a Black writer might have a lot to say about issues going on in the world today that affect the black community and God knows there are a lot of them and there's a lot of important things to talk about. But what if that writer also wants to write about Star Trek or, you know, whatever, whatever else that writer happens to be interested in um, and not pigeonholing people, I think mm -hmm. is important. Oh, I'm so glad to hear you say that. And I think that's something that we've been 
working on at Room on an ongoing level too, when we make special calls for contributors from different communities, often the question is, oh, do I have to write about being queer? Do I have to write about right. about my marginalized identity, like you're saying? And I think because the expectation is that that's what people are being called in to do. And I mean, I, I want to read that story about Star Trek <laughs> from someone from a different <laughs> perspective, right? So I was talking a bit about narratively, and I want to talk about how narratively is a cross between the typical news site and a literary magazine, which is kind of neat because that's actually the intersection that your writing lives at too. I mean, you have said that you're that narratively is not as focused on the news cycle as straight news publications, but you're also not as freeform as some literary magazines. So how what ties the publication together and what links these forms into the cohesive whole? So we do personal essay and reported pieces. We've been doing a category we call it hidden history recently, so it's you know, historical research pieces, and so those might all seem very disparate, but they're definitely tied together in a particular voice and approach to storytelling. Um, we really focus on narrative, as you might guess from our name. <laughs> we really try and create a vivid, engaging story that people can take a break from the bombardment of news and tweets and, you know, bite-sized things and really sit and settle in and be engrossed in a story in in a world that they don't otherwise have access to. We think of our reader as a curious reader who wants to go somewhere that they don't go in their own life, Um, whether that's, you know, reported stories about insular, strange subculture and getting into the nuance of the characters and motivations within that subculture or, you know, a personal essay about someone whose life looks very different than yours. Um, so I think that's what ties them all together, really. Nice. And and so for people who are contributing, like sending submissions to Narratively, what mm-hmm. is the current slush acceptance rate? It fluctuates, you know, I would estimate it's about 5%, pretty low, but that includes everything, you know, including a random way off the mark submissions from people who are clearly just blasting out their piece to everywhere and have never even looked at our homepage. You know, I would say the submission rate for pieces from people who have actually done their homework, looked at narratively, understand what we're looking for and send us something that at least kind of generally makes sense for us is would be much higher. And yeah, it's true. The number is kind of deceptive because our, our number is about the same at room too and that but that includes the cisgendered men who submit to us even though that's not who we're publishing yeah that it you know it, it's definitely skewed by people who who just submit blindly and you know we get fiction submissions which you know we we have never published fiction and, and have no plans to we get you know 500 word diary entry style personal essays. We get all kinds of stuff that, you know, if you read two stories on our site, you would understand we're not a fit. But things that are, you know, stylistically at least within the realm, I would guess the rate would be much higher, probably more like 20% or something like that. And of the um, the larger percentage group or the ones that are mm-hmm. kind of a fit, I know you've already told me that you see a lot of my parent is aging, dying, or dead, and it, it's making me reconsider my relationship with them stories. 
and a lot of eating this specific thing makes me feel connected to my family or heritage stories. And then, as, as you said, also, ironically, you get a lot of I want to talk about what it's like to decide to get an abortion because nobody ever, ever talks about it stories. <laughs> Is there anything else that you've seen too much of that you don't want to see for a while? You know, I think, you know, I gave those examples as tropes that I see over and over again. Um, but I think the bigger issue, you know, rather than a list of every angle that's been done a lot, I think the best piece of advice I can give is that if you want to write about an experience, familiarize yourself with what else has been written about that experience. Take the time to read other writers who talk about similar things or writing in a similar vein or writing about a similar kind of relationship or whatever it is, because you're participating in a conversation, you know, so you should know what has already been said so that you can push the conversation forward or introduce a new idea or a new perspective or look at it through a slightly different lens. I know I'm not the only editor who's looking for that. That's that's what all editors are looking for is somebody who is bringing something new to the table, something surprising and fresh. And it's impossible to do that if you don't know what's already out there. You know, and I I think with any topic, there's kind of the first note that gets hit, you know, and and a lot of people just write that in the void without looking around and realizing that that's already been established. That's the kind of foundation and we've moved on from there. And what else do you have to say? What's next? I like how you're identifying that it's not the tropes themselves, it's the it's the approach to the trope. Because I, I know mm-hmm. there was a while when the publisher at Room was always talking about stories that we'd see come in that she identified as, I've experienced another culture and now I have the feels. And as soon as she identified <laughs> yeah. that, I was like, oh yeah, we I've seen so many of those too in, in terms of... Some- oh yeah. But then that same, I think that same month, I published one because it was totally different and fresh, and there was something, mm-hmm. there was something to it. So it's not actually the tropes; it's more bringing something new to the table. And 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 I love how you're encouraging people to read, in order to know what's out there, so that you know what's new that you can bring to the table. Mm-hmm. Exactly. We'll take a short sponsor break, and when we return, we'll hear more about how many revisions Lily Danziger puts writers through when they work with her and what she learned about ethics and going deeper in writing through first-hand experience with the personal essay industrial complex. Lit Mag Love is co-presented by Room Magazine, Literature, Art, and Feminism since 1975. And right now you can help Room out with a fundraising drive. We're hoping to raise $10,000 through new and returning subscribers, merchandise sales, and donations by September 30th. And this is all to help keep some of our new projects afloat and free or financially accessible to all. That includes the Growing Room Literary Festival, the Indigenous Brilliance Reading Series, and then our new online response poem series called Turtle Island Responds, and it includes yours truly, our two podcasts, that's the Lit My Glove podcast and Fainting Couch Feminists. These projects and the people who spearhead them are really important to Room, and your help is going to make sure that they're able to continue doing this work. So if you want to support our work, you can do that at roommagazine.com. Lit Mag Love is co-presented by my course of the same name, Lit Mag Love. The Lit Mag Love online course helps you publish in journals. You can get smart, fearless, and publish with lots of help from me. And it's a course full of strategy and support and comes with a warm writing community. 
course registration opens only a couple times per year, and you can find out more on litmaglove.com. When a piece of writing makes it past the first reading and you're considering it for publication, or maybe you've accepted it for publication, what should a writer expect from you? Do you make any developmental suggestions, for example? Uh, Yeah, I'm a very hands-on editor, which I think most writers end up grateful for at the end, even if the process feels a little daunting. But most pieces that uh, I end up running, I usually edit uh, about three times at least. And usually the first pass is a more big picture, kind of identifying moments that need to be blown up into scenes when they're kind of just glossed over um, and any structural changes. And then a second pass kind of going through and getting more nitty gritty, asking for more specific details throughout. It's always asking for more, 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 more. And then a third pass kind of going through and tightening back up and cutting anything that's gotten repetitive or extraneous in the process of, of building it up. Can you describe any works that you recently published that stand out as important, maybe, or or significant, anyway, that you've published in Narratively? That's hard, because I love all of them. But um, let's see. The first one that pops into mind is a piece that we did recently that I really love, uh, that that did really well, too, you know, which is nice to see that it's resonating with other people. Um, Published a piece called uh, The Secret Life of an Autistic Stripper. And, you know, sex sells. People love stories about sex. But I also, I personally love doing more nuanced stories about sex work and also more, you know, nuanced, realistic stories about different ways of looking at the world, different ways of seeing the world, disability, developmental disorders, etc. So, you know, this piece was interesting because it wasn't what you would expect from a story about a stripper and it also wasn't what you would expect from a story about being autistic, um but it was the intersection of the two that made it really special and and unique and kind of was able to illuminate both aspects in a new way. And that's always a good way to go about finding a new way into a story is where it butts up against something else. That piece, I think, was a great example of that. I'll I'll link to that one in the show notes. That sounds fascinating. And what kind of writing are you eager to read in submissions that you haven't had come in yet? What we're really looking for the most right now is not that we don't get it ever, but that I'd like to get it a lot more, are stories that are really about a unique, spectacular experience, you know, that are really about something happening. I think a lot of personal essay is very internal. It's about let me filter this kind of ordinary experience through a lens of a particular way of thinking about it or, you know, let me reflect and reconsider and redigest. And, you know, it's almost kind of meditative and more about looking at your life in a different way and what the action of the piece is about, you know, you considering and reevaluating. And those pieces can be great. You know, we've published some of those. I've I've written several of those. You know, there's plenty of value to that. But we're focused more right now on stories where the action is external, where it's really about the experience that only you have had. I think a lot of the reason that 
there are so many of those contemplative kind of reconsidering essays out there is because one person can write an infinite number of those. Whereas the stories that are about a truly extraordinary experience, most people only have one or two of those. So they're, they're a little more precious and rare and you can't just keep wringing out that rag and, and getting more and more and more. It's really like, this is your story to tell. This is the story that you have. Um, and I want more of those. You want people's most precious jewels, basically. They're, they're yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're yeah, I want the big, I want the big story. I want the story that is like the one you've been holding on to, the one that everybody tells you like, wow, you have to write about that. Wow, I can't believe that happened. The one that, you know, if you tell people about it at a party, they're like, oh my God, really? Which doesn't happen if you, if you tell them about, you know, how fostering a dog helps me deal with my grief or whatever it is you know it's 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 not gonna you're not gonna get that big reaction from the kind of more internal reflective stories you're gonna get that you know with the one that's coming to mind that was most like that that we published recently was an excerpt from a great book by Tyler Weatherall called No Way Home and the excerpt that we adapted as an essay was we called it My Childhood on the Run from the FBI and it was about realizing that literally her childhood had been running from the FBI because her father was a drug smuggler and they didn't know it at the time. It's about realizing that and coming to terms with it. So it's this kind of epic adventure story as well as, you know, a family relationship story. But that's not a story everybody can tell, you know. There was another one about, it's called um, My Ex, the Drug Queen Pin. That's another, uh, those two are related. Not to say these big ones are always about... (laughs) drug trafficking, but that one just came to mind as well, that this one started from the writer kind of idly Googling the name of a high school girlfriend and realizing that she was on a most wanted list and kind of going down this rabbit hole and discovering her whole life and investigating her and trying to figure out, trying to solve her murder, ended up uh, absorbing his life. You know, that's an epic story about actually doing something. You can't write that story. It's like sitting in your living room and thinking about your life, right? It's about going out and living. But one one aspect of that story that I think is interesting because the, I guess the question that I hear from writers a lot too is is feeling sometimes, you know, fortunately for them, I think that their lives haven't been that exciting or wild. But in this mm-hmm. case, it's it's a case where it's actually not really his story until he engaged into oh my ex, the drug queen, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mm-hmm. go down this rabbit hole. So I'm glad you raised that point, actually, because that maybe that one's not the best example because it gets into murky territory where, you know, he managed to pull it off and it, it became about him investigating. It became his story that was sparked by her story. But, you know, to circle back to what I don't want to see ever again, <laughs> you know, tropes of, you know, my life intersected with the life of someone very interesting or my life intersected with someone else's tragedy. Let me tell you about how that impacted me and how that made me feel. And that I don't want. I don't want submissions about, um, you know, I lived next door to a couple where there was, you know, severe domestic violence and I could hear them through the walls and let me tell you about how that made me feel sad and uncomfortable. You know, I don't want essays about, you know, your experience of someone else's tragedy. And so the drug queen pin story is kind of is an exception to that rule because there are always exceptions 
to these yeah. rules, right? And this was one where he he took what could have been very voyeuristic and exploitative story, but he made it work because it wasn't just, you know, I knew this girl and then this happened to her. Isn't that crazy? You know, he really went in and, and took it upon himself to figure out what happened to her when nobody else was and when when she was killed and and then that was it and that was the end of it and he kind of took on the investigator role of of trying to figure out what happened it's like the challenge of writers who are writing memoir to dig up these stories that are from their own experience and I, and anyway i just appreciate that example because it's a great example of the the case where exactly it's exception to the rule where it's appropriate because he's dug so deeply into it himself yeah and you know, I mean, I hear a lot of writers say, like, oh, my life isn't interesting. I don't have anything to write about when that's not true. And they they have lots of stories. They just haven't yet developed the lens to look at them and, and see the maybe quieter but still very rich and compelling stories. But also, you know, I feel like maybe this is a taboo thing to say, but sometimes it's true. Maybe sometimes you don't have enough stories and you have mm-hmm. to go and live to write them, you know? And, and I think the idea that everybody can and should write memoir is incorrect. And I think it leads to a lot of kind of forced or superficial writing. And it definitely, it led to, you know, the personal essay industrial complex of tons and tons and tons of kind of superficial, fluffy, exploitative pieces where writers, you know, especially young women, were kind of put on the spot to mine their lives for anything juicy or vulnerable or or whatever because they're searching to have something interesting to say. But if you don't have a story that you feel compelled to tell and there isn't this like burning lava pit in the center of your life that needs to explode out in essay or book form, then write something else. Write fiction. Yeah, write fiction, write journalism. You know, you can still be a writer not everybody has to have a personal story. And if you haven't, if you don't have those stories in your life that, that need to be told, and I think more importantly, that need to be read, then maybe, you know, maybe that instinct is true. I love the tough love aspect of that. That's great. I, and I also have <laughs> never heard the personal essay industrial complex, but that's very apt. <laughs> I guess on the flip side of that, though, there are people who do have these stories that need unlocking with inside them, right? And, and maybe they haven't seen... Mm-hmm themselves like you're saying there's a lot of white women that kind of dominate the genre, the memoir genre and and so maybe they don't fit into that category and so maybe don't see themselves so what what stories do you think are missing from the personal essays that have been published in narratively or elsewhere you know it's hard to identify specific stories that that aren't there you know it's like when i if, if i see them then i'll know yes. that they've been missing. But if I knew that they were missing, I would be out searching for them. I don't know specifically, like a story. I want a story from X kind of person living in X kind of place, living through X kind of experience. Um, But I think it's more that if you're reading lots of personal essay and you haven't seen your story yet, then that means it's needed. That doesn't mean it doesn't belong and it's not good enough and whatever, all of those self-doubt thoughts, it means the opposite. It means that it is needed. (laughs) If if it's missing, then we want it. 
going back to the personal essay industrial complex, and that makes me think yeah. a lot about editorial responsibility too, right? So mm-hmm. having people mine their deepest scars, but maybe not being emotionally ready to write about that. I'm wondering, I guess, as both a writer and an editor, how do you navigate that particular minefield? As a writer, I plan ahead. I have essays and books that I intend to write about experiences that I know I'm not quite ready to talk about yet, whether I'm not emotionally ready or whether my thinking on them isn't fully developed yet. And I keep notebooks. I track the development of those ideas. I write what I feel ready to write and I collect material so that when I'm ready, I can write something amazing. <laughs> and that that's a practice that I learned from falling into the, it happened to me trap earlier in my career and writing kind of short, pithy essays that could have been bigger, deeper, more important pieces if I'd given them the time to germinate and given myself the time to grow and understand more fully how I feel about those experiences. So that, you know, that's how I handle it in my own life. As an editor, you know, as I said, I'm very hands-on and do a lot of developmental work and I I push writers pretty hard um, to really dig into the, the core of a piece and to make those bigger, deeper, more important pieces rather than staying on the surface and putting out something superficial that doesn't fully do justice to the experience they're writing about. So that works out one of two ways. You know, either I help the writer develop something real and meaningful that they can be proud of and that that does show that emotional and craft work, or they realize through that experience that they're not ready. And I've had writers before, you know, partway through the editing process say like, this is more than I thought it was going to be. I'm realizing I'm not really ready to go there. I don't have the answers yet for your questions, or I'm not comfortable publishing the answers to those questions, even if I do have them. And I always respect that and say, you know, okay, thank you for being aware of that. I'll respect that. And I leave the door open. If in a year you want to revisit this and you do feel ready, I'll be here. That's just lovely. So can you tell me what, what's next for you, Lily, in, in your writing, in your editorial life? Well, Burn It Down, this anthology is, is on the horizon. Drafts have started coming in and reading them has been amazing and editing them is really a cathartic joy. Uh, you know, when I was first asked to edit an anthology about anger, I was like, um, yes, of course, how did you know? It's a topic I have a lot to say about, but I didn't realize how much of a balm it would be to read <laughs> these essays and, and read all of these brilliant women and you know people writing about what makes them angry and putting their anger on the page after repressing it for so long. I want to clarify that's, that's balm, I, B-A-L-M. At first I thought it was B-O-M-B. Yes. <laughs> yes. A soothing balm. And that's, I've kind of started to think of it that way is like this book is going to be a place for that anger to live, that anger that has not been allowed out in public and that has been pushed down and rationalized away and smoothed over and covered with a smile. And now it's going to have a home in this book. And I, I want it to really sizzle and just be alive with that anger and be a place for other angry people who haven't been able to express that to, to connect with it. So I'm working on that now. 
uh, and it's a pleasure. And I, I'm starting to think ahead already to spring 2019 and all of the fun, amazing events we can have to promote it because it, it's an anthology. So there are so many different voices in it. So we can have readings and just get a bunch of creative, cool people together to talk about what we're pissed off about. Uh, it's going to be really fun. <laughs> sounds amazing. So how can people follow or connect with you? What's the best way for that? I spend way too much time on Twitter. Um, so if anybody wants to know what I'm up to or what I'm thinking or what I'm reading or looking for or want to connect with me, that's a good place to do it. Um, my Twitter handle is just at Lily Danziger, my full name. Um, yeah, that's the best place. And also on my website, lilydanziger.com, I set up a sign-up form where people can sign up to get an email when Burn It Down is available for pre-order. Um, just because as I'm talking about it to people, you know, I'm getting a lot of really enthusiastic and excited response. Yes. And <laughs> if anybody's excited about it and, and wants to be kept up to date, I have a form there. And I promise not to spam you. I'm going to send one email out when pre-order is available and one when there's an event schedule. Well, thank you for talking with me today and sharing all your Lit Mag love with us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So I hope you're ready to think about what we can glean from my interview with Lily Danziger of Narratively. The first thing that pops out to me is that she sees her role of editor as a big responsibility to help elevate voices that have been left out of conversations. So if you're reading lots of essays and you have not seen your story yet, then that means it's needed and and you should be sending it to her. That's the kind of thing she's looking for. And speaking of reading essays, though, you should be reading lots of essays to see what conversations have been had. Lily really stressed that in our interview. And she also gave a little more tough love, saying you might not be called to write memoir if you don't have that burning lava pit in the center of your life, as she called it, that needs to explode out in an essay or book form. And that's okay. That's okay. It might mean that you are more geared to writing in different genres, but it also might mean that you just haven't developed the lens to see what stories in your life are important. And another hint is reading other essays is going to help with this too. It's going to help bring about some of those epiphanies about what stories you might be prepared to tell. Expect to be challenged and make the best possible piece. If you do have the chance to work with Lily Danziger as an editor, she will go through about three major revisions with writers whose work she accepts. And the work that they do accept at the journal is, as they put it, work that feeds the minds of their curious readers who want to go somewhere that they don't go in their own life. So the examples she gave were reported stories about insular strange subcultures that get into the nuance of the characters and motivations within that subculture, and personal essays about someone whose life looks very different from their readers. You can read Narratively at narrative.ly. That's their full website address, so it's the word narrative.ly. LitMag Love is lovingly co-presented by Room Magazine, who's in the middle of a fundraising drive to continue providing literature, art, and feminism like we have since 1975. And the LitMag Love course, an online course to get smart, fearless, and published with lots of help from me. Sound editing for this episode is done by the wonderful Micah Lemiski. The transcript for this episode was done by me, and I'm your host, Rachel Thompson. 
Thanks for listening. You can find us online at litmaglovepodcast.com or on Twitter or Instagram at litmaglove is our handle there. Thanks for writing and reading literature and thanks for listening to Lit Mag Love. If you like the show, why not rate and review us? You can do that. It's another way to help us keep the show alive. You can do that on iTunes or anywhere where you get your podcast. Rate and review us so that we can keep being discovered by other writers and readers.